Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. God is at work in the world today. Did you know that? He actually is doing powerful things. He always has been and he always will be. Uh, So we want to see Jesus work. We want to see Jesus work here in our midst, not just other places, but right here, right here in our homes, right here in our church. We want to see God do great things in us and through us to bring blessing to others. And we can oftentimes look around at our present circumstances and say, well, geez, you know, it's... I just don't know if we're ever going to really see that. Much like possibly the Israelites would have seen their present circumstances in the time this passage was written. In our text this morning, Isaiah is painting a picture of what the risen Messiah, Jesus, is doing in the world today. What he's been doing since his first coming, what he's doing now, and what he will do until the end of the age. Until he comes back. It shows us the mission of Jesus in the world. And how his church can be called. Excuse me. How his church is called to be part of his ongoing. Unstoppable renewing work. I want you and I today. Each of us. All of us. To be open to Christ today. I want us to set aside plans for after church. Struggles from last week. Pressures we face this week. And be open to Jesus today and his gospel and give ourselves afresh to him. When I think about the possibilities of what God could do in our midst, when I look at this passage and see this is Jesus we're talking about. He can do anything he wants. He is the Lord of history. I think we ought to have great hope. We ought to be filled with great faith. If I could plop a church culture on us in a moment, which I can't, okay? Culture is created over time. But if I could, if I could create a church culture and plop it on us in a moment, it would be the vision of what we see in Isaiah 61. It's right here. Every man-centered purpose, every human enterprise is doomed for extinction. No matter how great it is in our world, it will end someday. The gospel of Jesus Christ, however, and the kingdom of God will succeed. It will triumph. So let's get on board with that. Let's, th- let's thrust ourselves at Jesus today. Let's totally get on board with his agenda and his plan. And let's see what Jesus might do for us and what he might do through us for his glory alone as his spirit comes and teaches us. When Jesus came into the world, God's power came down like it had never come before since that time. Jesus had the greatest anointing of the Holy Spirit ever, but it wasn't an anointing just for himself. It was upon him, but it was for others. And Jesus didn't come for people who in themselves were already mighty and anointed, but he came for the most unlikely. He came for the empty. He came for the totally depleted. He came for the poor. He came for the depressed. He came for the despairing. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for captives. He came for people imprisoned. People a lot like you 
and I have been. There's a saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is a true statement. One of the running narratives in the history of the world is the brutality of power-hungry rulers. There's another powerful leader that Isaiah talks about in these chapters of Isaiah 40 to 66. His name is Cyrus the Great. He was a mighty ruler of the Persians. He was more or less a warlord. He was great and mighty and powerful and greatly feared because he was brutal. How different Jesus Christ is in his power. He doesn't build his kingdom on the backs of weak people, but he uses his power to empower weak people. Weak people like us. And we need it. Christ's anointed ministry all started about 700 years after these words were spoken by Isaiah. The first few verses really show us and and give us the clear understanding that it's Jesus, the Messiah, speaking as Isaiah is prophesying. About 2,000 years ago, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes on the scene, okay, in his public ministry. He comes out of the desert, and he's in his hometown of Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, the synagogue ruler hands him a scroll, And he opens a scroll and he turns right here to Isaiah 61. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closed the scroll and he said, this is being fulfilled right here in your hearing. What Isaiah spoke 700 years ago, Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the one and I'm here now. And everything changes now. And everything has been changing since Christ has come into the world. And so we see here, From Isaiah 61, really 1 through 11, we see Jesus Christ and his ministry and his mission in the world. The amazing thing is that it's not just Jesus working unilaterally. Of course, it is Christ at work in all of it. But you and I are called to be part of it. There's a surprising word in the, excuse me, surprising phrase in the first three verses of Isaiah 61. And it's this phrase. It almost seems to be misplaced among all the other phrases that are spoken. Let me just read the first three verses and point it out to you. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here's the phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Right there, right in the middle is this phrase. And the day of vengeance of our 
God. And I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I just want to briefly touch on this. Where does that fall into this prophecy? When Jesus opens the scroll in Luke 4, he ends his reading right before that phrase. He ends it right before the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Isaiah, when he was prophesying 700 years prior to Christ, he lumped the coming of the Messiah as the one who would bring bring both salvation and judgment. I heard it put this way. I found it helpful. It was like Isaiah, in the spirit, saw way out into the future and saw two mountain tops, okay? Two towering mountains. And one was offset from the other one. One was before the other one. One was closer than the other one. But from a great distance, you couldn't see that they were separated by a great distance. So Isaiah lumps the coming of the Messiah as the one who would bring salvation and judgment. But Jesus himself said in John three seventeen, the son of man has not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the first coming of Christ was, was a coming of salvation. Wow. Woo. I don't need that on for my sake. <clears throat> Helps to see me. Okay, that's fine. Let's go with that then. The first coming of Christ was the coming when the Messiah would come and bring salvation to the world. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to save. The second coming of Christ will be the day of vengeance. Right now we live in an era of grace and mercy where the door of mercy is open to the world for all who will come to Christ. The second coming of Christ, the day of vengeance will come when the door of mercy will be closed forever. And those who do not respond to Jesus will be locked out and will experience God's vengeance. So the first coming of Christ inaugurated an era of mercy. And we are in that era of mercy now. So the Spirit was powerfully upon Jesus for a purpose, for a mission. And what is the purpose or mission? I have four things from the rest of our passage. Four things that show us the mission and purpose of Christ. First, it was to bring freedom. To bring freedom. Second is to create a brand new people with a new identity. Third is to give his people a new mission. To give his people something to live for. And fourth is to spread unquenchable joy. Let's take those one at a time. The mission of Christ here 700 years prior to Christ's coming. Jesus said it when he came and we've been seeing it happen ever since. And we will until the end of the age. His mission is to bring and spread freedom. To bring and spread liberty. He came to bring good news to the poor. To set me, he, uh, he was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day, excuse me, and the day of, the ven- of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. I think we could sum up all those phrases 
as he has come to bring freedom. He's come to bring good news to the poor. Not just the physically poor. Not just poor nation states. He's going to spread some goodness to them. But to all who realize in themselves they are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus has good news. Hopefully that's you and me. In ourselves, right? Not apart from, or not in Christ, but apart from Christ in ourselves, we are spiritually poor. Jesus has good news for us. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted. He's come to free brokenhearted people. How relevant is that? Has anyone here never had a broken heart? Never found themselves broken and weeping and full of sorrow and anguish. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to set captives free. He came to set us free. He came to open the prison door so prisoners could come out. He came to spread gladness and set sad people free from despair and depression. Much could be said here about each one of these phrases. But I think one that really describes and and kind of encompasses all of them is the phrase when it says, he came proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah is referring to the year of Jubilee that is outlined way back in Leviticus 25. The year of Jubilee was every 50th year the trumpets would blast and everyone was supposed to set prisoners or slaves or servants free. And everyone was supposed to give back property to other people that they'd received for payment or whatever. They're supposed to give it back to their original owners. And the motto in the land was this, proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Jesus Christ came to proclaim the year of Jubilee, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now think about that for a moment. The year of the Lord's favor. Now don't think of it just as a calendar year. But it's the era we live in right now. It's the time we live in right now. Right now is a time of the Lord's favor. To live under the favor of God means that we are living under the smile of God. And oh, what freedom we have. When we know that God, our God, our Father, because of Christ, is smiling down upon us. Let me ask you a question. Do you live consciously under the favor of God? I'm not saying because all of your circumstances are favorable, but because of Jesus and Jesus alone. You know that his favor is upon you. He's already shown it through Christ. Do you live there? Boy, what a difference that would make if we just were conscious daily of God's favor upon us. You know, TV preachers, it drives me crazy. They talk about God's favor in very different ways than this. I'm talking about the favor of all favors. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. You are free in Christ, if you know him. Jesus said when he came on the scene in John 8, he who the Son sets free is really free. Actually, he says free indeed. So Jesus amazingly proclaims 
this year of God's favor here in Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 he says he repeats these words he's proclaiming freedom here's what this means in God's favor you are free from your sin you are free from your sin because Jesus paid your debt in full now think about what this would have meant for Jewish people back in the Leviticus time or even in this time who were hearing this for the first time. When Jesus says this, he's saying, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Here's what he's also saying. You are free from your past. You can walk forward in freedom today from everything in your past. Your past 20 years ago, 50 years ago, or yesterday. It's amazing. Jesus is that great. Only Jesus can say this. If this were just me up here standing, forget about it. Okay? But Jesus proclaims this. He says, the Lord has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You get that. Let that land on you. You can walk in freedom from your past. Why? Because you belong to Jesus now. And so does your past. And I think it also means you are free from the havoc that sin has wreaked on your life. We have all made terrible mistakes. We have all sinned in great and terrible ways. I understand we might, some might have dirtier and deeper secrets than others or stories, stories, not secrets, stories than others. But Jesus is in the business of taking all the dark things about us and turning them for our good. And he's in the business of taking even the, what we've reaped because of the sin we've sown and turning it for his glory and our eternal good. Here's another thought. I, here's another thing I thought about this morning. And I got, it was so interesting. I mean, God, it was totally God. But I get these daily emails. They don't come every day, but most days. They're just, they're quotes from um, men and women, past and present. Gospel-centered quotes. The thought came to me today, you and I, because of Christ, because of the year of the Lord's favor, we are free from, you ready for this? This is amazing. This is great news. I mean, I think it is from ourselves. From our own limitations. From what we think about ourselves. You are free from it. The gospel is not about you feeling better about yourself. I would say it's almost about you forgetting about yourself completely. Because you're so wrapped up in Christ. Tim Keller says this. Not self-conscious, not self-confident. A Christian is liberated to be self-forgetful. You are free today to forget all about yourself. Like, wait a second. I've been told for years I, just, I need to feel better about myself. It's not the answer. It isn't. Feel better about Christ. Okay. Jesus came to bring Freedom. His mission is to spread freedom and liberty 
And I want that to land on you today. So you can be like that we sing the song written by Charles, um, Charles Wesley. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let the chains fall off today. Jesus' mission is also to create a new people with a brand new identity. A brand new identity. Jesus is creating a brand new people here, giving them a new identity. I say, where's that at? Look at verse 3, the second part of it. After all of this, Jesus says, I've come, I've come to proclaim freedom. The end of verse 3 says this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Who are these oaks of righteousness? It's the same unlikely people of verses 1, 2, and 3. It's the people that were formerly mourning and sad and sorrowful and brokenhearted and imprisoned and captive and paralyzed in fear and broken by their own sin. Jesus frees them, frees us, and then he calls us something, an oak of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? The very same people who were previously described in such ways of brokenhearted, poor captives bound in prison, weary with a heavy spirit. What happens to these people? The Lord calls them something else. The Lord calls them oaks of righteousness. What really matters is not what you call yourself or what others call you, but what Jesus calls you. And in this passage, he says, those that I set free, I set them free so that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Who's this for? Well, it's for all who come to trust in Jesus. What does this mean? Well, the two phrases after that they may be called oaks of righteousness help us understand. First, it says right afterwards, the planting of the Lord. And then it says that he may be glorified. So this is the Lord's doing. This is not a matter of human resolve or self-effort to become something. This is the Lord's doing. But the Lord plants us deep in Christ through faith and encouragement in the gospel. This is not only something the Lord does, but this is merely something he calls us. He just says, you are an oak of righteousness. It makes me think of how we are declared righteous in the sight of Christ before we are at all righteous in ourselves. And we never really are fully righteous in ourselves. We never certainly can stand before God based on our own righteousness. But because of our faith in Christ, God looks at us in Christ and says, you're righteous. And we know ourselves better than that, don't we? We know ourselves and we realize, I'm really not that righteous, but in Christ I am. God calls us oaks of righteousness. But it also says, this is for the Lord's glory. And my English Standard Version Bible has a little number reference next to that phrase, that he may be glorified. And down at the bottom, if I follow it down there, it gives the reference or that he may display his beauty. 
oftentimes commentators, a few of the commentators I found interpreted the verse more, or that part of the verse more along those lines, that the Lord may display his beauty through you and I. He calls us oaks of righteousness. He plants us in Christ. We get a brand new identity. No longer are we mourners wringing our hands, merely. No, no longer are we just brokenhearted people who just can't move because life hurts so bad. But he calls us oaks of righteousness. And he does this to display his beauty through us. Think of what an oak represents. Maybe your, maybe your translation just says tree. A tree represents strength. Do you know that when you are encouraged in the gospel and set free by the good news of Jesus Christ, do you know that it makes you a strong Christian? It makes you strong. An oak, a tree... A tree also because it's growing. It's being nourished by God. And it's bearing fruit. And what is the fruit? Righteousness. So we are declared righteous in Christ. This is the Lord's doing. He's planted us in Jesus. He's called us oaks of righteousness. But it's not just a shell of righteousness. But actually produces a righteous life. The book of 1 John says this over and over again. Those who are born of God live a righteous life. And this is to display the beauty of the Lord. Number three, Jesus' mission is to give his people a new mission. It's to give his people a new mission. These people that he comes and liberates with his good news, the good news of the gospel, he sets us free from our sin and our past, and ourselves, and the effects of sin upon our lives. He calls us oaks of righteousness, and then he gives us a new mission. Verse 4 says this, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many Generations. Who is the they here? Same people. Who once were mourning, broken, enslaved, in bondage, sad, sorrowful, heaped ashes over themselves because of affliction. God says, Jesus says, these people are going to rebuild ancient Ruins. Jesus uses the most unlikely of people in his work. <clears throat> I'm challenged by this in all honesty uh, because sometimes we can be paralyzed by, quite frankly, unbelief. But I want us to be free today and I want you to be free to know that Jesus 
is talking about you and using you. There's great hope here that Christ wants to use you in his rebuilding project in the world. Jesus the Messiah is taking those who once were full of sorrow and making them workers of renewal. He takes those who once themselves were ruined by sin and sadness to be repairers of ruins. Those who were once enslaved, he used He uses to set others free. This is good news for you and me because nobody's excluded from this. Not one person. The only person that's excluded from this is the one who thinks they're too good for Jesus. That's it. Anyone here think, I'm too weak. I can't be used by God to do that. Bingo, you're just the right person. Because he wants to fill you with his limitless resources, his limitless power to do his work. For the Jewish people that would have heard this first, this had incredible relevance. For they were bound, enslaved in Babylon, but soon would be set free and go back to Jerusalem. And what would they do? They would be, on, they would be set to work to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. They would rebuild the walls. It's the book of Nehemiah. They would rebuild the temple foundations and eventually the temple. And eventually they'd begin rebuilding their own homes. You and I are called to this work as well. We live in a broken world. We live in a, in a world that is broken by sin. Havoc is wreaked on it by the devil. We ourselves have been part in it in our past. And Jesus calls us to be part of repairing the ruins Bob Dylan wrote a song long ago called Everything is Broken. In that song, he says this, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. I was down at Bethel Mission last week and I stand before 50, 60, 70 guys and preach to them the gospel and talk with many of them before or after and hear stories. And it's easy to see brokenness, broken hearts, lives shattered by sin. Generations shattered by sin. I was talking to one young guy afterwards for a while and he went through his story. I mean, young, he's younger than me. I think he's probably, he said he's 28. His story. And then the generations before him, and the utter ruins of his family. It's devastating. It's easy to see that. It's harder to see it in Ankeny, in our city. But our streets are filled with broken hearts, right? They were nicely groomed. We wear nice clothes. We drive nice cars, comparatively speaking. We live in nice houses, We can put a smile on our face. We have food on the table at home. But we live in broken neighborhoods and in a broken city. Because there are many people who know nothing of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know him. 
And so it's easy to walk down the street or interact with your neighbors and just think, they're fine. When it's all around us. It's more disguised, which might be more problematic because we just have a hard time seeing it. May God grant us eyes to see the broken hearts, the brokenness around us. Matthew Henry in his commentary on this verse says this, an unsanctified soul is like a city that is broken down and has no walls, like a house in ruins, by the, but by the power of Christ's gospel and grace it is repaired. It is put in order again and fitted to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. We are surrounded by broken people, broken homes, broken neighborhoods, and we live in a broken city. Our world, spiritually speaking, is in utter ruins. And we have the privilege of working with Christ to repair, to rebuild, to bring renewal. Right? Because we have the gospel. Because we have Christ. This is his mission. This is what he, when he found us, what were, where were we? We were ruined. We sing that song. Um, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. That was you and me. And he found us. And he put us together and he's still putting us together. And there are others all around, lost and ruined. We have the privilege of working with Christ to bring spiritual renewal. Our city needs it. For some, for some right here, it needs to start even urgently. And you know this. I'm not telling you this. You know this. It needs to start urgently in your own home. Things are in ruins. Things are out of sorts. Jesus today proclaims liberty to you and I, calls you and I oaks of righteousness, and enables you and I to be agents of change right here, right in our homes, right in our neighborhoods, with our children, in our marriages, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, right here in Ankeny. One thing I know for sure, Ankeny does not have too much of Jesus. Or does it? You think it does? Are things a little imbalanced here in Ankeny? Too much Jesus going on? I don't think so. So let's be workers with, with Christ, bringing him to others. Now, this may, may seem daunting. In fact, it may seem impossible. It may seem too big for us. And it is. Which is why, if all we're doing is trusting in our own resources, we will live in unbelief. Nothing will happen. Well, let me put it this way, okay? Because I've done that. I've, well, I still do sometimes, okay? But we, we trust in our own resources, and we go at it, and we fail, and then we get discouraged, and we live in unbelief. But when something seems too big for us, that's good. Because then we lean into God. We lean, lean into Christ. We are more open to him, to what he may want to do for us and through us. 
Jesus has unlimited resources. He never expected you and I to repair ruins on our own. I heard somebody one time say this. The problem isn't that there are impossible things in the Christian life. The problem is that we think anything is possible apart from Jesus in the Christian life. We need to start changing our mindset and saying, I need your help to do anything and everything that you want me to do in your name. Think of this verse, John 7. It encouraged me late last week. This is the resource. These are the resources we need. This is what you and I need. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What's the out for? To bring blessing to others. Let's see ourselves the way God sees us. Let's embrace the mission that Jesus has given to his church. You and me. And let's see what Jesus might do among us and through us. Number four. The mission of Christ is to spread unquenchable joy. Verse 10, I believe, is God's people in response to Jesus' work in the first nine verses. It says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In verses 1 to 3, it talks about a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Here we see that. We see God's people responding to Christ who has done this. Here, God's people, and I hope you and I, are saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? It tells us, because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me with his garments of salvation. Because a robe of righteousness has been put on us. Not something we think about, something we wear. Not an idea, but given to us and put on us like the clothes you're wearing on your body right now. Joy as a bridegroom or a bride decked out for a wedding which I cannot help but think is meant to even usher in a future joy when Christ will come again for his bride. And when he comes, he will look us in the eyes and he will say, you are perfect. And he won't be lying when he says that. Verse 11 says, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 
The Lord will do this. He will do this. And it will be for his glorious name. This is a promise, which means you and I can take God at face value and claim these promises for us. So let's end with this. What are some practical steps that we can take today to go after this? Does joy sound bad to you? You got too much joy? You can respond to me, yes or no. If you really do, raise your hand, okay? We'll hook up with you afterwards. Everyone will. Too much joy here? Okay. Uh, too much um, too much freedom in Christ? Anyone? Not me. Okay. Too much of a mindset that you exist for Christ to do his work? Me neither. Then what are some steps we can take? Practical steps today, right now, to move in this direction. So we know these things not just as an abstract idea, but something you and I, full of faith in Christ, are going after. Three things. First, start every day. I really mean this. Start every day this way. I am forgiven and I am free in Christ. I am accepted fully by God through Christ's righteousness alone. Fully accepted. And not by my my own performance at all. Not at all. The righteousness by which I stand before God is outside of me. So I'm going to turn away from myself and turn to Christ. Do that every day. It's more than just words, but sometimes it might just start with the words. Number two, start every day turning your attention to the person and presence of the Holy Spirit and claiming the promise of the Holy Spirit according to the words of Christ. I quoted John 7 earlier. That is a promise for you and I. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow. Rivers of living water. Claim that promise daily and turn your attention to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And number three, start every day deliberately giving yourself to Christ's plans and Christ's purposes and not your own. I don't know about you, but I can sometimes go a long time where I just am getting up and all I'm thinking about is my plans. What I need to do, what I've planned to do that day. Rather than the plans and purpose of Christ. I'm saying deliberately, right? I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that I consciously get up and say, I don't care about Jesus' plans. Rather than saying, Jesus, what do you have in store for today? And leaning into Christ at the beginning of the day for what he has. Which will almost certainly mean if you go somewhere for work, you will go to work that day. But he might have some other things in store for you as well. What might God do in our lives in our families, in us as a church, 
if we flung aside all hindrances and pursued this, what Christ is doing in the world, spreading freedom, spreading joy, spreading salvation and renewal. Let's go after it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this, your word. I ask you, God, to have mercy upon us. No doubt, Lord, we stand before you, not just as the ones that you, you have bound up our broken hearts, but we still oftentimes do find ourselves with our own brokenness, with our own sorrows and pains. But it's not meant to hinder us from walking in the freedom you have given, living for the purpose you have set out before us and the purpose that is going, the the mission that is making its way through the world right now. And it doesn't stop us from joy. So God, would you, by your spirit, put within us these things we've talked about today. Would you speak over your people today, your people who trust in Jesus, oak of righteousness? Would you speak over us today, you have a new purpose for which to live, way better than any human enterprise we might give ourselves to. Would you speak over your people today, Joy can be yours, unspeakable joy and full of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.